Amen. It is great to worship with you and welcome, uh, especially if you're new here, uh, welcome to Element City Church. Uh, this is your... Let's see, this is our second week here, and so we are grateful to be here and grateful to have you here. I know it takes courage coming to a new place. I met a few of you earlier, and so welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Sit back, be our guest. Uh, if you got questions about what's going on or next steps around here, check out the next steps table as we go. But before we get, jump into the sermon, I'd like to just take a moment, Veterans Day weekend, just to acknowledge our veterans. And so if you are a veteran, have served in the armed forces, would you just stand up right where you're at? We'd like to just say thank you to you. Thank you very much. Thank you is not big enough uh, to encapsulate everything that we want to, to give to you, but uh, we thank you for your service. And uh, I'd just like to kind of give a prayer on behalf of your family and behalf of those that are serving now. So if you join me for that, and then we'll jump into the sermon in a minute. So Father, we want to take a moment just to lift up the, the men and women in this room and those around our city and around the world uh, who have served in our armed forces. We pray your blessing upon their families. Each situation is different and unique and needs your story inner, uh, inner spoken into them in a, in a specific way. And so we ask that you be active on their behalf. We lift up the men and women around the world that are serving even today. We pray for your wisdom to be given to them, uh, that they might do exactly what they need to do. We pray for your blessing upon them, and we ask for your favor upon our country and draw us back to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Now, uh, glad that you're here. We're kind of jumping back into the series in Joshua that we have been in. And Joshua is one of those books in the Old Testament. It's right after the Pentateuch. So it's kind of this early story about the nation of Israel. Have they been led out of Egypt, getting ready to go into the promised land, into the land of Canaan that God had promised them hundreds of years before. Now they're moving in to take that. And we've been looking at a few different things throughout that. So we're looking at kind of the first few chapters of the story. And then there's a lot of stuff in the middle part of the book of Joshua that's fun to read if you need help falling asleep, okay? Uh, so, but toward the end, that's where we'll kind of pick up next week is kind of the culmination of Joshua. So tonight we're going to look at this story that uh, is one of those failure moments in life. Anyone ever had a failure moment in life and you're willing to admit it? Okay, that's everybody, even those who did not raise their hand. So, um, I'm a dad, and I love being a dad, and I've had a lot of cool moments as a dad, like where your kid writes you a note and says, you're the best dad ever, and it's awesome, right? I've also had those failure moments where, like, the way I respond, let's just say, is not the best, and then I know it, and you instantly know it if you're a dad or a mom and you've responded that way, and it's like instantaneous, but you like being angry in the moment, so you kind of hold on to that. And then it's usually about five, ten minutes into that. God, if you've got to walk with the Lord, maybe he's kind of chipping at your heart saying, hey, wow. Mm. Whenever God says, mm, it's never good. Um, and then maybe you and the Lord have a little conversation, and, and I've had those moments where I've had to go back and just apologize and be like, Man, I really blew it there. That was, that's not the character I want to display. That's not the kind of person I want to be. And that's one small failure moment. Uh, I've had many, many others. Uh, in fact, uh, this could just be a therapy session and I could share uh, a bunch. 
But I, why I'm saying that is because today what we want to wrestle with, I, I think, is one of those tough moments in the Bible where we see the dichotomy of God. We see the grace of God in this incredible thing uh, of story of grace that we see encapsulated and kind of pinpointed in Jesus. And that's what we're going to end with. But at the start of this, we see kind of this justice side, this righteous side of God, where he's got to call things as they are. Um, and it's not always easy. In fact, we live in a culture that doesn't like to talk about sin. Um, and, and we like to say a lot of other things, but the reality is it, it needed dealt with. That's the whole reason Jesus came. And so maybe you're kind of coming back to church and, and someone invited you and you're like, oh man, the preacher's touch. Listen, um, tonight I hope that you see a beautiful picture of God. It will ruffle your feathers. But God's big, and let's be honest, we're little. And, and sometimes we, we think we can get our mind all around God, and I'm just here to tell you, he's way bigger than you could ever get your mind around. And so sometimes you have to live in the tension a little bit because God's grace can meet you there, but there's that tension of, of how does this, does anyone ever get angry? Oh, good. We're in a common room. Perfect. Um, does God ever get angry? Hmm. Hmm. So the story we're going to see, Joshua chapter 7. Last week we saw Joshua chapter 6, which is kind of this culmination moment uh, of the nation of Israel and God kind of going to work on behalf. And remember, we said a few different things, a few takeaways from all these different things. We said at the very first, the very beginning, Joshua chapter 1, is this idea that God called and commissioned Joshua. And God has a calling and a commissioning for your life as well. And that we're to follow forward faithfully. God's always looking to draw people to himself because that's his heart. We looked at the story of Rahab and it's kind of the foreshadowing, this grace, this lifeline that Jesus offers us, we see kind of in the story of Rahab early on, this idea of making memory markers in our life. We, we kind of did that as we left the old campus and kind of come in here. And last week we looked at this idea that God longs for us to trust him over our own cleverness. Because that's really the story of Jericho is, is the way it happened and unfolded was not about Joshua's cleverness. It was about simply trusting that God was doing something beyond what Joshua could kind of create on his own or that the army of Israel could create on their own because it's who marches around a city and has the walls fall down. That just, that's not a great military strategy at all. And yet we see God working on behalf and saying, hey, you never know what God will put in motion with one simple step of obedience. And that's what we see in Joshua chapter six. Now in Joshua chapter seven, there's this interesting thing that takes place. And as we kind of, I'll skim over it and we'll draw some conclusions and some application to it. Uh, but in Joshua chapter seven, this is the very first verse here, how it's stated. I'm reading from the New Living Translation for this, but it says this, but Israel violated the instructions about the things that were supposed to be set apart for the Lord. A man named Achan had stolen some of those dedicated things, so the Lord was very angry with the Israelites. So, if you remember, we talked about Cherim, this idea of this holy war, and it's only mentioned a few times in the scriptures, and we see it on display in Joshua chapter 6 with the whole battle of Jericho, and God said in that moment, here's the deal. 
I'm, I'm fighting on your behalf. Things are going to happen supernaturally that you can't have created, you can't control. And as you take this city, I want you to dedicate everything to the Lord. You're not to take a thing from this, right? This is parents going, no cookies for you. And then the toddler going, oh, cookie. Right? And so what plays out is Achan, one guy in one tribe of one family, does something that violates what God said. Don't do this. I, I want you to, to kind of leave this. Everything is going to be dedicated to the Lord. And we wrestled with that last week of what do you do with the violence that we see? Uh, because it's not easy to get your mind around because we look at it today on this side of the cross and we go, well, that's, that's not the best. And that's not the way it should play out. And, and things do play out differently now. We filter things through the cross and through Jesus in a much different way. But God is God and he's big enough to make decisions that maybe we s struggle to understand at times. And Achan goes in and he steals some things. Some things that were supposed to be burnt and kind of left or put in the treasury of the Lord, he takes and buries in his tent underground. It's interesting as you read through it, he actually buries it in two different levels. There's like the under the rug mat of the tent, there's something, and then deep down, there's some other stuff. So here's the question for you and for me. Do we ever try to hide stuff under the rug of our life and then maybe even dig down a little deeper, we hide some more stuff there that we don't want people to see or to know. I don't know if I'm pushing any buttons or not, but have you ever felt that in your own self? You don't have to raise your hand, but have you been there? And so Achan hides this stuff. Here's what transpires is, uh, Joshua says, hey, we're going to get this other town we're going to take, and we're going to capture that. And they send a few spies over to, to look at it, and the spies come back and report and say, hey, this town's really small. We don't need to take the whole army. In fact, it'll be more of a burden for everybody. So, so just send like two or 3,000 uh, to kind of go after this. It'll be great. It'll be easy. It'll be smooth pickings, right? And they go, and what happens? It doesn't go well. didn't go as planned. In fact, they lose 36 people as they're retreating, running away. And Joshua is in this conundrum because, God, you, you said we're supposed to go. You, you said you were going on our behalf, and, and this didn't play out the way it was supposed to, God. What's going on? In fact, you can read a little bit further in uh, Joshua chapter 7, kind of verse 8. Here's what he gets back. He says, there's defeat that's happening. He says, pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of this country will hear about this. They will surround us and wipe us out. They'll wipe our name from the earth. What then will you do for your great name, O Lord? And then I love God's sense of humor. As Joshua is laying in the dirt, just in sackcloth and ashes, going, God, I don't understand. This did not work. And, Josh, and God comes to Joshua, I love verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. Ooh. Ooh, that's just, okay. <laughs> stand up. What are you doing on your face? Question mark. Israel has sinned. That's why 
They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen for themselves. They have lied. They have put them in their own possession. Joshua, here's the deal. You didn't fail because I wasn't with you. You failed because there's something going on in your life, and I need to deal with it. And it's not just your life. It's the whole nation, which we don't understand because we live in such an individualistic-driven society. We pin things to people, but we forget that sin has ramifications. Sin is not just breaking an arbitrary rule. It's a relational violation between us and God. And relational violations have ramifications. They have a ripple effect uh, across relationships that are impacted. And God's saying to Joshua and to the nation of Israel, hey, here, there's something here that has to get dealt with. Now, this is where it gets a little cray-cray because what God does, you can read through the rest of the chapters, he brings one uh, tribe before and, and one family before, and, and basically by casting lots, they get down to Achan's family. And Achan comes forward, and he admits it. He, at least he owns it and says, yeah, that's me. I totally did that, and I blew it, and I shouldn't have. And he admits it. He tells people where the stuff is hidden. They go and get it. And then in Old Testament justice, here's some things that unfold. And aren't we glad that it isn't that way today? Um, in the Old Testament justice, uh, it, things are dealt with, if you know what I mean. So you can read it for yourself. It does not go well for Aiken's family. And uh, we can look at that and go, well, gosh, that seems really rude. He just stole stuff. Well, yeah, we could look at that and, and pass judgment that way. But here's the reality. We are the created, and God is the creator. And we don't get to stand and say, this is the way it should be. God stands, and he says, this is the way it will be. Now, we may not like that, and maybe as a follower of God, you struggle with that. Maybe you're here, and you're like, I man, that just seems really judgmental. That seems really tough to swallow. And, and I can understand the tension with that. But, but friend, I, I want to encourage you to let yourself wrestle with that because that's part of this deal. And the consequences seem extreme because Achan's family is killed for this. And the very last verse of chapter 7 says, God's anger subsided. And that's all we know about chapter 7. It goes on to chapter 8. They go and they attack the city again. Everything goes well. They take it. They keep moving on in the journey of owning the land of Canaan and taking back the promised land that God had given them. So this is that speed bump. Emotionally, spiritually, this is kind of a tough challenge. And so what do you do with all this? How do you wrestle with this? See, sin's not a popular topic to talk about. We don't really like to talk about it, but the reality is God had to deal with it. That's why Jesus came. Ultimately, God dealt with sin through Jesus. Aren't we grateful for grace? No hands. Okay. That would where we go, yeah. Grateful not to be aching. Okay. This challenge to say we face consequences for our choices. How many of you have ever faced consequences for your choices, your decisions? Yeah. That's a reality of life, isn't it? People will suffer consequences for their actions. But the greatest um, challenge that we had was that sin 
led to separation and death. The Bible talks about that, that because God is holy and he is set apart, he can't associate with sin. Sin cannot be in his presence. And so the reality is he had to deal with it in some way, shape, or form. And so the options become, well, let's let people try to work their way to a perfect and holy God and see how close they can get. And God knew they'd never get close enough. You and I didn't have a chance to try to get close enough to a perfect and holy God by heaping up enough good deeds in order to make do and get past some of the stuff, our own blunders, our own brokenness, our own mistakes that we made, the own things that we have to own, the things that we have hidden. And so what God said is, I'm going to provide a plan that's going to work because I'm going to take care of it. I'm not going to leave it up to them to have to deal with it and take care of it on their own. We can't escape the reality that as we talk about sin is what the Bible talks about, this idea of missing the mark. This idea of saying this perfection of a holy God I can't ever make because I'm not perfect and I'm not holy. And I think we'd all admit, yeah, I'm not perfect. Um, if you're struggling to admit that, then wow, we could talk. Um, but I think we'd all own that the reality that we are not perfect. And so we have some brokenness. And so Jesus was sent to deal with that separation, that death. Now, there's still going to be ramifications. There's still a ripple effect to the sin choices that we, own, that we make. And that's part of the consequences of decisions. That as, as parents or aunts and uncles, you have decisions for your kids, for your nieces, your nephews, that if they violate something, then there's going to be consequences to that. That's not because you hate them. It's actually because you love them, that you put healthy boundaries around them. No, you can't have 3,700 cookies because that's not good for your tum-tum. That'd be dum-dum, okay? And so you can have three, not 3,700, okay? And so, like, you're doing that out of kindness and out of goodness of your heart, not because you're mean or that you want them to, to, to be cry. You're putting ramifications or some boundaries on them. So we may still face consequences to our disobedience and to our decisions, but that's why God's grace is so great, because he took care of the ultimate consequence, that our sin, our brokenness, our mistakes that we own, and we have to all admit that, yeah, that's us. I can't fix it myself. And so God had to deal with that, because you can't just ignore it. You have to deal with it because God's perfect and he's holy. And so he said, okay, I'm not gonna leave it up to them to try to get there, I'm gonna make a way. And so he sends his son, Jesus. And this is why grace is so awesome. Because it was God's effort and his initiative to say, we need to be people who are made right because of faith, because of our trust in what Jesus has done and who he is and what he does. The Apostle Paul highlights it this way in Ephesians. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. What can a dead person do? Nada, right? They can't do anything. We couldn't do anything in and of ourselves to make it right. But even in that condition, God said, I love you, and I'm going to make a way that you are saved by grace 
He's also raised us up, seated us with him in the heavens of Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might put on display the immeasurable riches of his grace through the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace that you've been saved. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. We may still suffer consequences from our sinful choices, but Christ because of our faith in him and our faith in him alone takes away the ultimate ramification of sin, separation and death apart from God. We can now find relationship and life with God through faith in Jesus. Our greatest consequence has been dealt with because of Jesus and what he has done. That's why we can live with, an, with gratitude in the shadow of the cross because we don't have to do the effort now to be right before God. He's made us right. Now, what the Bible talks about is this idea of building this relationship, of having life with God. You want to grow in this relationship with God. That we don't minimize sin, but we sure maximize Jesus. We don't minimize the consequences. We don't minimize the, the brokenness of our world. Is our world broken? Yes. Are you broken? Yeah. I'll own that. And so I don't minimize that brokenness. I don't minimize those mistakes. I don't minimize the, the shortcomings in that. But I want to maximize Jesus because that's where my hope is. That's where my life is because of what he's done for me and who he is. So we maximize him so we continually are captivated by what he has done on our behalf and all he has done to bring us home into relationship with our creator, to restore us relationally, to reconcile us, to pay a debt that you could never pay and that you would always owe and never pay off, but he paid for you. We maximize Jesus because there we're fueled with gratitude to keep moving forward and we're not haunted by our guilt and holding us back. That's where people get stuck, is they think it's about what they have to do. See, the enemy loves to speak into your life and, and cause you to get stuck, cause me to get stuck. To say, look, oh man, you did that? Whoa. There's no way God will forgive that. In fact, uh, you might as well just give up right now. That's the voice of the enemy. He would love for you to stay sidelined. He would love for me to stay stuck and to say that's, that's something that has ramifications beyond what God's grace can cover. And here's the truth. Nothing is beyond the grace of God. Now, there may be consequences that you might have to deal with, and that's reality. That's life. Welcome to it. But the truth is there's nothing beyond the reach of the grace of God. I love this quote by Richard uh, Sanchez, who says, or Ricardo Sanchez says this, the devil knows you by your name, but calls you by your sin. God knows you and knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. You have a name to God. You are not your sin to God. You have a name. And Jesus came for you. In fact, your name was in his mind as he stayed on the cross. He could have come down. But he didn't because he hung there for you and for me. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the grace that we're invited to have. And so throughout the, the whole New Testament, we're invited to enter, uh, to enter into this regular rhythm of repentance. And in essence, that's really what we see in Joshua chapter 7. The need for repentance. 
So Joshua chapter 7 highlights the story, right? And we could skip over the story and go, well, okay, that's a nice little story. But I just want to pinpoint and kind of draw out and take us into the experience for the next 10 minutes or so of just what does it mean to practice this rhythm of repentance? What does it mean to look like this? What does it mean to make this a rhythm of your life? Here's what I wrote. A regular rhythm of repentance will keep you relationally right with God. A regular rhythm of repentance will keep you in relational rightness with God. See, sin is not just breaking an arbitrary rule. Sin is breaking relationship, breaking trust. That goes back to Genesis 3. Why did God say, don't eat from this tree? It wasn't because he was big meanie. He put a boundary and said, trust me. And what do we say in humanity? No, 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 we trust ourselves. We'll make the decisions, God. We'll take it from here. And then we've got to face the consequences of that. That's how sin is a part of the world. That's how sin's a part of your world and my world, your life and my life. When we say, God, I know better. I'm going to do it my way. You are the created. There is a creator. He gets to call the shots. And we may not like it, and it may be tough, and it may be tension-building at times, but the truth is that's where life is found because he loves you. He's a good, good father, and he has the best in mind for you, the best at heart for you. So this regular rhythm of repentance leads us to have a right relationship with God and to maintain that. Why? Because this is relational it's not just a transaction thing. This is relational between me and God and me and others. That's why when we sin and we get angry with other people, we take it out or, or we curse them or we wish them ill, we're relationally violating something here. It's not just breaking an arbitrary rule. That's why Jesus, when he teaches through the Sermon on the Mount, man, when you read through that, who can live up to that? Okay, you've seen people don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you lust, you've done it. What? Like, Jesus just breaks all the rules because it's not about a rule. It's about a relationship. And he says, I want you to have a right relationship with me and a right relationship with others. And when that gets violated, there's fractions and ramifications that, that ripple through those. And so we have to deal with that, God says. So ultimately, I'm going to deal with it through Jesus. And then as a loving father, I'm going to come alongside and I'm going to discipline in a loving way so that you become better. Because I care about your character, not just your conduct. And so I want to grow your character in this. And so this regular rhythm of repentance, this idea of reflecting on this, here's what I'd like for us to do is this, uh, to kind of go on a, a little bit of a journey uh, leading up to communion and to uh, a final song tonight. It just invites you, give yourself permission to kind of reflect tonight. So get comfortable uh, in your chair and just you and God work on this. I'm going to walk you through uh, some key scriptures that I think are, are pivotal, that if you want to make um, this idea, this, this practice of repentance a part of your life, here's one way that you can engage and do that. And so it's not this idea of I've got to feel really, really guilty. It's not that. This is saying, God, I want to be right in relationship with you.
and I want to be the best I know how right in relationship with the people around me. And so if there's friction here, if there's tension here, if there's things that have rippled effect and, and impacted this, then we've got to get that right. And so I've got to own some stuff here. And I've got to be honest with that. That's at least what we see from Achan, is at least he owned it. And I think that's part of repentance, is just owning. And so um, think through uh, this verse, just a couple different things, reflection time as we think through this. Maybe you want to close your eyes with it. We'll read a couple scriptures here. I'll lead you through that. And then we're going to take communion a little bit different tonight. Instead of doing it on your own, I'm going to invite you to, to grab the juice and the bread here in a few moments. Bring it back to your seat. We're going to all take it together. And then you'll be able to put the cups uh, in your chair in front of you. And, and we'll do this all together tonight. So a little differently. And then we're going to sing this song, uh, Mercy, at the end that is just leaning into God's mercy that he has for us. And so uh, just in the quietness of your chair, maybe you want to sit and just contemplate. Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, is a great psalm to begin the practice of repentance. So that's really kind of what we're getting ready to do. It's just what does it mean to, to practice this? What does it mean to do it? And so as simple as this, maybe it's just listening to this verse. I'm going to read it a couple times over and then just give you a moment to pray and reflect. Psalm 139 says this. David writes, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Search me, O God and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me in the path of everlasting life. And so Father, we take a moment here. Would you search our hearts? Would you point out anything in us that is offended, that's, that's caused rips in this relationship between us and you, maybe us and others? You called us to be people who love you and love people. So Holy Spirit, would you search our hearts these next just few seconds? Is there something that maybe you're tapping someone, some of us on the shoulder with, hey, this, this is out of alignment in your life. This is between us and it's hindering our relationship. Let's deal with this. Maybe sometimes God's going to lead you into a time of just saying, I'm going to sit and be quiet. The psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. And that this Psalm 139 is just, God, search my heart. Is there anything that's hindering? Is there any roadblocks, any speed bumps that's slowing our relationship down? Maybe he's tapped you on the shoulder, so to speak, to say, hey, here's, here's some stuff. Here's some attitude things. Here's some habits and some practices, some hangups you've been hanging on to for a long time. And it's not getting you to where you want to go. I want you to get to a so much better place. And so 
can we deal with that? So, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says this, If we claim to be without sin, we are only fooling ourselves. We're not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and he is just to forgive. To forgive our sins and to cleanse us. If we claim to be without sin, well, we're fooling ourselves. We're not living the truth. But if we confess, if we own it and say, God, yeah, that's not right. I agree with you. That's really what confession is. is it's just saying, God, yeah, that, that's not your best. I, I agree with you that that's not the best for me. That's not what you have for me. And I'm really sorry. I know it hurts your heart when I choose to live that way or pursue this more than you, whatever this may be. When I react this way, when I live with this kind of attitude, God, I know it doesn't reflect your heart, the kind of heart you're trying to build in me. So maybe you want to take a moment and just own that, confess that. Tell God, yep, you're right. You're the creator, I'm the created. I'll own that. I confess it. And and God, would you now cleanse me? Because you tell us if we confess that you make us right. You heal that. You begin the process of healing it. You forgive us. And you work toward cleansing us. So take a moment. Psalm 51, the last few verses we'll look at here before we move to communion. David writes, after he made a few mistakes in his life, he was a man after God's own heart, but made poor decisions, faced the consequences of that, had to deal with things between him and God. He writes this psalm in one of those moments, and he says, just listen to these words, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love because of your great compassion would you blot out the stain of my sins would you wash me clean from my guilt would you purify me from my sin against you and you alone have I sinned I've done what's evil in your sight and you're proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just would you purify me from my sins that I might be clean wash me that I might be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Maybe it's the simple prayer of now that we've asked God to search us, we've confessed, that we just say, God, would you create in me a clean heart? Would you purify me? I wanna let this go. And I need you to create in me a clean heart. The heart that reflects your kind of heart. So take a moment. Just ask him to do that.
Father, we admit our brokenness, our willful rebellion at times, our ignorance other times. Would you purify our hearts? Would you create in us a clean heart, God? That we might approach you, might have a purified relationship, a clean, smooth flowing relationship between us and you. And as we look into observing communion, that's what we remember, is that we have that ability, not based on our abilities or based on our actions, but simply because of our faith in your son, Jesus. And in communion, we remember his body broken, given up on our behalf, his blood shed that we might have forgiveness of sins, be given life with you through faith in him. And so in a moment, I'm gonna invite you just to come in and get the elements of uh, communion. Just a piece of cracker there representing his body juice and then um, head back to your seats. We're going to take this all together tonight differently than what we normally do. So I invite you to, to take a moment for that. You can continue to pray and have reflection time, you and God, and then I'll lead us through that in just a moment. This rhythm of repentance keeps us relationally right and in alignment with God. I don't know if you ever wonder what it would have been like for Jesus that night when he took the bread with his disciples and he broke it, gave thanks for it, knowing what the next few hours would entail. See, we know on this side of the cross, but he knew what was coming. Disciples in the moment had no clue what was going to happen. The pain he would endure. He could have said, that's enough. I'm done. Tapped out and left. But he didn't. He endured. And his body was broken. He said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. My commitment to you is not just a whim. It's everything. His love will never abandon you. Take and eat. And then he would take the cup later that night and would pass it. It would have been one extra time than normal. So it would have caught their attention. What's going on here? He says, this cup represents my, my blood. It's going to be shed for the forgiveness of the sins of you, of people. The Old Testament talked about without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's why the sacrificial system was instilled. And one last final sacrifice was going to take place with the unblemished Lamb of God, Jesus himself, his life given for you. You know the final thought in Jesus' 
mind as he hung there was you. It was me. That he loved you. And he gave up his life for you. That you might have forgiveness of your sins. Sin had to be dealt with. And he dealt with it on your behalf. So he said, do this in remembrance of me. Take and drink. I think a great way to end our time, this practice of reflection, repentance, is to hear the words of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. Can I just read it over you and then we'll sing this song together and we'll close our evening. Romans chapter 8 says this, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. There may be ramifications and consequences, but there's no longer a condemnation over those who have put their faith in Jesus. He says, What shall separate us from the love of God? What shall we say about such amazing and wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who can condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us, was raised to life for us, and is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for you. He's praying for you right now. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, angel, or demon, neither our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we can never thank you enough for all that you've done on our behalf. We thank you for coming on a search and rescue mission for us, for bringing us home to the Father through faith in you, your sacrifice and your love. We thank you for giving us life that we might experience life with you for now and forever. Thank you for sealing us with the Holy Spirit, your hope so that nothing will ever separate us from you. Thank you for your healing grace that meets us in our mistakes, heals our hurts, and your grace that fuels us going forward, chasing after your best for us. We thank you for your mercy. Your mercy we don't deserve, but we can't deny. Your mercy we remember every time as we partake in the goodness of your table. We thank you for your mercy. It's everlasting, ever present, and every day available to us. And we worship you for it. We ask that. Jesus. Jesus.